are we growing the value of that relationship? Yes. And then both branding and performance are tools. The order and the sequence, time matters much less here. Welcome to Branding Over One, an exclusive podcast by Branding Mag. I'm Martin Shearer, and I'm super excited to be sharing some great conversations with some of our personal branding heroes. And with us here today, we have Neil Hoyne, Chief Measurement Strategist at Google, Senior Fellow at Wharton, and since quite recently, author of the book Converted, The Data-Driven Way to Win Customers' Hearts. Or as the book forward says it, when the world's biggest brands want to sharpen their digital marketing strategy, they call Neil. Now that's quite an accolade to have. So welcome, Neil. Thank you for being here. I'm very happy to have you on the show. I've been following your LinkedIn posts a lot and thought, my, this guy has a lot of interesting insights. And then I grabbed, I got hold of you, and then we started talking, and then you mentioned your book and started reading. So, oh, this is a person that we really need to have on the show. And as you perhaps know, we only invite our personal heroes, people that we would like to talk to. And what I found very interesting is that you put this digital marketing of how to measure data and how to work it in a broader perspective. And you added psychology and sociology and you made it almost sound like digital marketing is like marketing in general. And I think that was a great, great insight. So welcome. Great to have you on the show. Hey, One th of the thank things. You so, thank you so much for having me. And by the way, the, the personal hero accolade, that's, that's incredible. I'm honored. Thank you. Uh, yes. So uh, uh, for us, it's actually an, uh, a hobby. We invite people we love to talk to. And uh, this is a way that we uh, keep our own learning high and you know, uh, make marketing fun for ourselves as well. So what you mentioned in one of the early conversations, which I found incredibly interesting, is that marketeers, especially digital marketeers and performance marketeers, are so much focused on selling and converting immediately. But that's not how it works. Now, we've learned this doesn't work in the, the real world, but somehow through performance marketing and through measuring and through all the data we have, we thought this would work in the digital world. Now, can you explain a little bit why this doesn't work and give some examples and how it should work and what you have to do to make that work? Absolutely. The starting point is a simple story about growth. The difference between short-term and long-term investments, short-term and long-term marketing. Now, I understand the case for the short-term, the transaction-oriented, let's have somebody click, let's have somebody immediately convert, because one of the historical problems about marketing has simply been accountability. A CFO saying, is advertising and marketing really driving sales, or are you simply throwing yourself in the mix to pick up the check? And so when digital came around, that helped to really resolve that issue to an extent, to say, now we can see somebody, where that investment went, what that person did. And that was great because it started to ease that burden. But what we also recognize is that across a number of different facets of marketing, we need to interact with people before they're ready to make that decision. Branding is a key example. How can you build a brand if you also need to expect everybody to buy right away? Those are in conflict with each other. But now it's also coming to the performance marketing side. Because as much as we like to push people with strong calls to action, strong offers to say, buy now, we know that people are going to take their time. They're going to price shop. They're going to learn more about the different options they have available. They're going to switch devices. 
But more importantly, that relationship will be built and defined over multiple transactions. It seems bizarre that any company would start and to say, after you buy my product, we're going to start this story all over. Could you imagine in an in-store context, somebody comes to your store, buys a product, they come back the next day, and you have to ask them for their name again, and you pretend like you've never seen them before. This is digital marketing for most companies. Every transaction starts over. That story starts over. And so what the book really talks about, first of all, is introducing this problem and the limitations that it imposes on marketers not being able to move beyond a single transaction. Now, in the book, I like to use relationship metaphors because everyone can gravitate towards their own personal experiences. And I joke around fairly early about what would happen if these same marketers were to go to a bar one evening and maybe their goal is to get married. And if that's their goal, if that's how they're measuring success, (laughs) you don't need to have conversation, right? You just need to go up to people and propose. Hi, would you marry me? That's what I'm measuring myself by. And chances are, if you ask enough people, somebody's going to say yes. Then you gather with all your marketers at the end of the evening, be like, I proposed to a thousand people and three said yes. And someone else is like, well, how do you get to four? How do you get to five? And what we're starting to see is look, that worked for a certain period of time because that's what everybody was doing. So the customers, the people at the bar, they were used to it. This is just the way things are. And now what we see is companies are actually being a little bit more ambitious and saying, this problem has to be resolved. What if I can build relationships? What if I can start focusing on long-term growth? What if I can prioritize my marketing and my resources towards those relationships that have the most potential? Spending more time servicing, listening to those customers that I know are going to be with me for a longer period of time, are going to spend more money, create more value for my business. Instead of just saying, I want to raise my hand and say, who is willing to buy today? You're going to get my complete attention. And so that's the transition that we're seeing. This is not simply the book arguing that this transition should occur. This is a transition that's actually happening with top marketing companies today. And it's really designed to be a guidebook for everybody else to say what you feel, what you intuitively know should happen in marketing. Here's a guidebook for how to do it. That's super interesting. You said several interesting points I would like to touch upon. Sure. Let me start with the first one. I hope I'll remember all of them. First of all, you suggested that there is a difference between branding and performance marketing. And that a brand and that currently what's happening is that branding is after performance marketing. Well, it should be before. Is this something that is happening in the field now? Is this something that there that companies understanding that you first have to brand before you have to sell? Oh boy. I would start with this basic. When when I look at performance and branding, I really look at this as short-term versus long-term investments. The performance marketing people raising their hand being like, look, I can prove somebody did something because I received money. And and the unfortunate <laughs> people on the branding side <laughs> saying, no, we we know yeah. people are going to do something later. And this is an essential and it is a critical part of marketing. And so whether we call it branding or performance, which seems to be the industry terms, or we call it short versus long-term investments, both are equally necessary. Both have a place. And what we're really looking is to say, what's the intersection between the two of them? And it's to say, instead of looking at the arbitrary timing before somebody buys or does something, what if we just look at it to say, we have customer relationships. And here are two activities that we can do that each strengthen that customer relationship in a different way. 
And if we start to measure them appropriately, we can measure what their incremental impact is and just say, let's not worry about timing at all. Let's just say, are we growing the value of that relationship? Yes. And then both branding and performance are tools. The order and the sequence, time matters much less here. And you, you, you mentioned measure. So uh, to, to make it a little bit more concrete, because it sounds very philosophical and very right, but you know, to switch from abstract to concrete, how would you measure and what would you measure? So the, the starting measurement is just this basic idea of customer lifetime value, which if you haven't come across, it is very straightforward. How much is that customer going to be worth? Now, the big differentiator here is we are talking about the individual customer level, the individual customer relationship to be able to look at your customer base and to say, these are the people that are going to spend more or less than other people. So you mentioned lifetime value of customers. Now, this assumes two really important things. One is that certain customers are more value than, valuable than others and that you cannot switch it that much, that a low-value customer cannot become a high-value customer or that it's difficult or that's not worth doing or that it needs a lot of investment. And two, that you can find them. Now, first, over the first point. So, in the theories and ideas that you have, you, you recognize that uh, one customer cannot grow in value. Do, do I understand you correctly on that? It is. And I look at it less from a, a dogmatic sense to say you can or cannot do something. And I simply look at it within the respect of the ease of which you can do something. To say, That's if you want to prioritize Indeed. your marketing exactly. efforts, is it going to be better to find, let's use the personal relationship example. We started off in the bar. I promise I won't beat this to death. Maybe I will. We'll see. <laughs> but it's the same yeah. thing as if you meet somebody and we all have those friends that say, you know, th th this person has some issues. Don't, don't worry, I can change them. That might be true, but it could take a lot of effort versus finding someone where there's that natural fit. It's the same with customers. It's better. It's just easier to find people that have a great affinity towards your products and services that are a fit to what you offer than trying to say that fit isn't there, but with enough effort and enough time, I can change them. So I simply prioritize so one over the other. That's so true. So true. But it's basically what you're saying is, uh, yes, it's possible, but it takes a whole lot of energy to do that. And exactly. a whole lot of energy. I mean, there's some companies that can do that, but that means, uh, let's say, uh, to be very practical, launching new products, uh, yes. extending your product range. So that is possible, but that is not short term at all. That is, let's say, that it needs a large pipeline of investments of uh, extending your brand of doing that. So that makes sense. So basically what you say is for the products that you have and for the brand that you have, if I interpret you correctly, it makes much more sense to look at who are more consumers willing to buy and spend more on it than getting the consumers that spend less on it trying to spend more. Makes that's, all the sense in the world. That's exactly it. And I, I will to some of those more established companies out there. I, I am perfectly willing to recognize, again, companies like Amazon, at least here in the United States, as far as I know, their customer acquisition tapped out years ago. Some companies saturate their market where there are more, no more customers to acquire. And in that case, again, we look at prioritization to say, yes, in that case, you certainly should extract more value, develop more products for those customers that you have. 
But if you have that option of someone saying, well, where should I spend that next hour of my time and the next dollar of my money? I will put it more towards find people that love your business for who you are than trying to extend it and bend them in a new direction. Indeed. I, I think this is the, perhaps uh, the difference in also how you would define marketing. If you define marketing, including, let's say, product developments and a long-term vision, then it's a different story. But I totally understand where you're getting from. And indeed, Amazon is a beautiful story if that they, you actually mentioned that uh, in your book, that they managed to capture a part of the audience that is um, very well off, very wealthy, uh, more open to spending online and more open to spending uh, money online. So this is something that uh, they did very well. And then they can tap into that with other products. Exactly. Another, another point that you mentioned that, that, that I think is crucial to understand your thinking in the way marketeers can use your thinking is that uh, you suggest that these customers can be found, that you can find these customers that are more valuable than others and identify them. Yes. And it's really for companies to say, out of those customers that are great, and again, the inverse applies for the customers that are poor, what are the characteristics? What are the commonalities between those customers that made them so great? Where did you acquire them from? How do they behave? Those samples say, well, where can you find more of those people? Now, one mistake a lot of companies make is that they see how valuable their top customers are. And they say, these are the only people we want because the difference is striking to them to say, wow, look how great these small. And what it leads to is this idea of micro-targeting. We're only going to target the the best of the best customers that we have. And I want people to understand that that what I'm encouraging is actually something a little bit wider, which is to say, if if your customer population, if you look at all the people you acquired today, if they're worth X, I just want to know that tomorrow you're going to acquire customers that are slightly better than that. And that's important because it means you're not necessarily targeting just a small population, the very top segment of your customers. You're just looking as a business to say, Part of our mission is to just improve the value of our overall customer base. And we do that by every day setting out to say, we just want slightly better customers than the ones we were acquiring the day before. That's it. That's the goal of this entire initiative. It's not to say, I want to find the perfect person for my business each and every day. You're going to cut down the population fairly quickly. You just want Mm, to say, I want to continually improve the type of people I meet and the type of people I target for my acquisition. This is so interesting that you say that. So basically what you're uh, suggesting is targeting makes sense, but don't hyper-target. And that you make sure that you, let's say, on average, you try to get your average customer slightly more valuable by looking at, let's say, the chunk of customers that are more valuable than others. Yes. And how... how, how, You just want to look at at, at the group of customers. If you look at it and say, we acquired these thousand people, are those people that you acquired better than what you would have done by targeting the entire market? And I'll be honest, some companies approach it by saying, I appreciate the whole high value customer thing, but where they actually end up making the most progress is removing all the low value customers. By understanding here are customers that no matter how hard you target, they're not going to come back. And that's okay. And so companies say, look, at least we can free up this budget to say, this is a lost cause. No matter how many flowers you send this customer, they're not going to come back. Maybe if you give them something below cost and you take a loss. But those are the practices we want to move away from. Just accepting people for who they are and what they That's can bring so to your true. business. 
And that's so true. In between the lines, you mentioned something that happens all the time with marketing. That is, they are so focused on getting the customers that are willing to invest too much and even make a loss on the customer to gain it. For, for, and then they see it as a profit or let's say as a, as a not perhaps a profit, but as a, a win to have gained this customer. Look, we have gained this new customer, but at what price? And then what often happens is then they say, oh, yes, but this is the average value of a customer. So if we win this customer at so much extra cost, that's okay because in the future it will become this customer. No, it's a different customer. It doesn't. It will not become that customer. I've seen this happen with, with marketers so many times. Over uh, and have, over again. I have as well. And this is why it's so important. We do talk about averages sometimes here, but this is why when we were talking about what customer lifetime value is, it's important to stress that all of this starts at the individual customer level. Where companies make mistakes with this oftentimes, and this is what leads them astray to say they don't want to try it, is they create just an average number. They say every customer we acquire is going to spend this amount. No, start <laughs> yes. with what the individual value is, how much those individual customers are worth. And if you want to roll that up, to say, this is the average of all the customers we acquired today. That's fair. But don't start and simply calculate an average and then apply it to any new customer that's acquired. That tends to be a little bit more optimistic than is helpful. Good that we have this conversation. And you know, the, the interesting thing is it's, uh, it goes slightly against the marketing orthodoxy from mass marketeers. If you, for instance, look at the work from Ehrenberg Bass, everybody knows Sharp, but it's actually uh, the whole school with Sharp as uh, one of the main components of Ehrenberg Bass. That we, um, it's actually a bit more nuanced, but what they say is just target everybody, sell to everybody. But what you're saying is uh, perhaps that's not wise. Could it be that there is a difference in customers? For instance, that if you're trying to sell a Mars bar, then it's wise to, to try to sell to everybody. But if you're trying to sell, let's say, um, a new subscription to a, uh, to, uh, to, to a, a new media account or, let's say, uh, hotel bookings, then it makes much more sense to, to target. Could there be a difference in the type of product if you go mass or more targeted? Or I, I, I would say that it's, it's a mistake to look at anything in, in marketing and a recommendation to say simply that it's a law, that all companies should follow it as it's an absolute. This is human Indeed. behavior. This, this exactly. is not a physical science. This is not, we're not studying gravity or the speed of light where things are constant. Now, what we see is that if you look at a mobile gaming company, generally about 0.2% of their customers are going to drive 98% of the value for that game. Oh, wow. Think about That's that for extreme. Now, I've played mobile games. Um, and I'm surprised when I see people that have admitted to spend two or $300 a year on mobile games. I think that's exceptional. I have seen the transaction data where I've seen some people spend upwards of eighty dollars to $90,000 on mobile games. Oh, wow. Games. Now, I don't know these people personally, but this is shown in the data. People do spend that way. And for companies, they may have millions of downloads and be dependent on just tens of thousands of players for the success or failure of their game. Does this exist in chocolate bars? I hope not. I hope there's not someone, maybe a large retailer, that's buying from another retailer, that's spending $80,000 a year on chocolate bars versus someone that may spend 100. <laughs> yeah. So generally in some categories like CPG, 
you won't see this type of differentiation. There's only so many bottles of bleach or razor blades or chocolate bars that somebody needs. And so the upside to those businesses is not as great. And to say, it probably could still be helpful to just be able to go through and to say, hey, who are the people that are buying the most chocolate bars? You may want to know that, but it's not going to be as defining as a strategy because the customer behavior isn't as defining as something like mobile gaming, where it's at the extremes. But you should at least be aware of those differences. The second limitation that companies like CPG companies hold, um, and sometimes this can also fall into, say, appliances or furniture, is that a lot of lifetime value depends on repeat purchases. And so the question is, do you observe enough of those purchases? And also, do you have that data to make a decision? I know a lot of CPG companies where they say, look, I'd love to do something like lifetime value, but we don't get that data back. We just know how many units we sold, and that requires you using different techniques. And so this is why in this conversation that I can provide what the best practices are, but I'm very, I'm very much against being dogmatic to say this is the only way you can view marketing. These are laws for marketing because I really look at them more as opportunities. This is what we see companies doing, what companies are exploring, but really the impetus is to any listener is to say, what applies to your business? To explore that, to see if it's the best potential, the best opportunity for growth, and then pursue accordingly. Super. This is so interesting. I think this is a very good uh, counterbalance of some of the dogmas going around this. Uh, dogma outside of movies and cinema are something that we should try to avoid. This is the thing. Well, you, just one of the other things that you mentioned that I found incredibly fascinating is uh, you mentioned uh, in your book and also earlier conversations we had, embrace human nature. How to use human nature to sell more. Now, of course, this, uh, this sounds like a cliche. Uh, if you know human nature, you can sell better to them. But how does this work in practice? And what's, let's say, some of the, um, the techniques that you can use human nature in to sell more or to build a relationship first? In its, in its simplest context, it's simply admitting that there's going to be error in everything that we do. Again, let's, let's tie. We've been working. Let, let's carry over with this, this dating metaphor for a moment. It's like someone who believes that, look, I have the perfect job. I consider myself to be reasonably good looking. I'm not talking about me in this case. Uh, why wouldn't somebody love me? Yeah. Like, what am I missing? And it's just not there. That connection's not there. And I, I bring this up to importance because I do work with a number of companies who believe that the source of success is being able to remove all of the error. Saying we're going to measure every interaction, every touch point, and from that, we will be able to be successful. They look at the world in a very strict, defined way. And I can empathize with it because I started, and to a large point, I still am in that category to say, with enough data and enough understanding, I can do anything. And we admit, back to that comment I made about physical laws, we are not perfectly rational people. Now, an interesting study that we saw, and we'll find a way to link to it, uh, was that there was a company that actually did a meta-analysis of nearly 700 experiments that were done on the retail side to see what type of experiments led to the biggest impact, the biggest change of behavior. And what they found through this meta-analysis were things that pulled more on human behavior and consumer behavior were more important than arbitrary changes to the colors of, of buttons, the size or design of landing pages, those arbitrary constraints. Mm. The lift in those cases was almost random compared to what they saw was consistent lift from people that said, well, let's try to push more on how humans behave. 
What do we mean? Let's talk specifically. What are changes in human behavior? It's simply companies understanding that things like social proof matters. What other consumers are saying about your products matter. And there's even some research that suggests it doesn't have to be unanimously positive. Consumers actually have a little bit less trust when everybody says that a product's perfect because we oh, know fascinating. there's never that agreement. And so those types of things, understanding to say, well, how are people taking cues from other people in their family, in their network, the reviews posted online? How is that going to shape behavior? Instead of simply saying, what we tell the consumer, the consumers will believe. How do things like surfacing the amount of products you have in inventory, how does that change or guide behavior? What level of trust needs to be established? Those are some of those basic behavioral principles that people need to be aware about that can shape that behavior, but they deserve a place in marketing because otherwise you risk falling into the trap to say, we're going to plan the perfect rational approach. People will come to our site, they'll read about our descriptions, then they'll go to the pricing page, and then they'll purchase. And anybody that falls off that track, they were never really interested to begin with. The I love the the ad network delivered the wrong inventory. Those people never wanted to buy our products because they didn't follow the path we set forward. And to be honest, what all this does, where I really get fired up about it, is that the the idea that we can quantify everything is attractive, but it kills our sense of wonder, our sense of curiosity. What makes us human? We're like, I know people are going to do crazy, silly, ridiculous things. It boxes us in as a marketer just to say, we're going to iterate in small steps than trying to do big new things. Hmm. This is interesting that you say. Uh, so you suggest doing things in many small steps is more worthwhile, at least in the digital field, than big changes. Did I understand correctly? I, I would say yes. Now, I will say that both have a place. But oftentimes within companies, here's what unfortunately happens. People that are working directly with the data, the analysts and marketers, will see things in the data that executives, just by virtue of their position, won't come across. And so let's say you're in an organization where the people working with the data, working with the customers, working with the website, come out with a thousand ideas. What's sad to me is that those thousand ideas, they get filtered through the different levels of the organization. And then eventually, an executive, a CMO who has to make a decision on those, ends up with three or four ideas. And of course, by that point, these are the biggest ideas that are going to often take six to 12 to 18 months to implement. And all the smaller iterative changes, not only did they get filtered out, but nothing, they're usually they're just left behind. Now, in the grand scheme of things, companies will say, well, how much time should we spend? Should our yearly strategy be around something that only drives a small part of revenue? No, that wouldn't make sense from prioritization. But it also means companies are leaving money on the table because they're just not able to focus on small iterative change. Isn't that the question of more of how you structure the company then and how you structure your marketing department Why in devolving enough responsibility to lower levels to make that decision? That sounds more to me to an organizational issue than how to use the data per se. Absolutely. And it also depends on incentives. So let's take a look at this through several different contexts. One is you have a marketing department that is incentivized and given budget based on a specific metric. And let's just say, using the traditional model, based on immediate transactions, people that are going to buy. Now, if you're ahead in your numbers, you probably feel you have marketing dialed in. There's less of an incentive to explore. 
If you're behind in your numbers, not a great time to take risk. So when do you do it? And most marketing teams struggle with it. How much money should we put into each group? Then we also say, well, what, apart from that, let's go a step further and let's say, well, the second problem we run into is how much autonomy do individual analysts, the people that often have the best ideas, how hard is it for them to execute their ideas? I had a meeting a couple of years ago where I posed this question to a CMO. And I said, how hard is it to run a test in your organization? And she was fairly confident. She said, well, if we needed to do something today, we could do something today. And all the people around the table smile and nod. And she was right from where she sits. Later that evening, I was sitting and having dinner with a couple of the analysts. And I just kind of joked with them. I said, how hard is it really to run a test? They said, let's say you wanted to change something on our landing page. And let's say it would have no impact whatsoever on our business or the legalities of our business. They said, we'd be lucky if we could get it through in eight to 12 months. <laughs> wow. 12 months. I said, that's how hard it is because we need to get our boss's approval, legal's approval, design approval. We probably have to put it in an engineering sprint somewhere. And that means that our idea not only has to be a large enough opportunity, but we also need to make sure we're right. Because if we go through all these efforts and then it just so happens we've run a test that doesn't work. And so I said, well, what happens? They said, nothing. Why bring it up? They're like, it's just, it's <laughs> yes. not a great way for us to spend this time. So what they do is they see an opportunity that says, this will lead to more money for the company. And I mean positive based on the complexity of implementing. This is something simple we can put on our webpage. We're not going to do it because the costs are just too high. And so what we see there emerge is now we have a process question. So we start, we have a resource allocation question. Where does that risk go? Who takes that risk? Now I have a second to say, how do we make sure those ideas get surfaced? And so the answer to that, and the answer to a lot of these problems comes from the leadership side. The leaders don't necessarily need to say, well, what are all the great ideas in a yes or no, should I pursue it? But we see some really great marketing leaders saying, what is that process? What are those bottlenecks for those ideas, for all the data that we've captured? How do we actually apply any of it? And what they often find hmm. is that it's not that they need more data. It's not that they need more systems. It's not that they need more people. They have plenty of that already. They just need to figure out how they unlock all of that value from their people, from their data, from their existing systems to go do stuff. And that tends to be exactly where the leaders fit in is to say, go to those analysts and say, what are your ideas and how do we get them out faster than saying, I'm going to give you a training on a new CRM platform or some other god-awful thing. That will not help. <laughs> Letting them work and do what they can with data will. Super. Those are some great insights that I think will be very useful to many of our listeners. Now, before we slowly go to the end of our show, just a few anecdotes that you mentioned that I found incredibly interesting that will also be interesting to our listeners. You mentioned that there's, that there's this huge supply of marketing behavioral knowledge that is being untapped. Before I give the spoiler of what that could be, I give the floor to you to explain a bit more. <laughs> Uh, I'll tell you, the advice is, is, is actually comes from somebody else, uh, a number of professors. When I was leaving UCLA uh, after my master's, I went to each of my marketing professors and I simply asked them, what do, now that we've completed all the formal coursework, what is it that I need to know in the real world? And so a few of them have stuck with me and have proven time and time again to be true. The very first one was avoid the first page of Google. I thought that's strange. <laughs> that's where the best results Super. are. Why do yeah. I want to go to the second page? And she was very adamant that 
the data you see on the first page of Google is where most companies leave it. How big is this market going to grow? How many people are in this particular industry? Uh, Google told me the answer. That's what I'll go with. And they refuse to consider other points of view, things that are usually on pages two and three that may not be as widely accepted, but sometimes could be more appropriate to the research question they're asking. Even sometimes when we talk about customer lifetime value, if you're sitting here listening to this and you go into Google and you say, how to calculate customer lifetime value? Uh, I checked before the show, the answers on the first page, page of search, I love the people on our search team, but they're entirely wrong. They're not at the individual <laughs> customer level. They make more assumptions than are useful. And unfortunately, there's also this really nasty infographic that says, here's three wrong approaches. We don't know which one is right, so we're just going to average them all together, uh, yes. and that's still wrong. Yes, 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 yes. Indeed, that's the, the averaging. You don't know what to do. You just average the different methodologies and numbers, and you hope it's right. And, and we hope it's right. We're gonna, that's that, that's groupthink at its very best online. Now, the second, the second piece of advice that I received, which has been just as helpful, was to spend more time with academic research. And I thought this was puzzling, but as I was leaving school, there was a question was raised, well, how much academic research have you read? I said, well, here I spent, just spent two years at a university, and apart from case studies or insights that were presented in class, zero. I don't pick up those papers because it's not written to me. It's written to an academic audience. The math is really hard. I don't, the implications to my business are unclear. And she said, exactly. And she said, because of that, nobody reads this research, at least notwithstanding someone like Malcolm Gladwell writing a book five or six years later. But she said, this is where the value is, because these are research projects that are arguably higher quality and done over a longer period than most businesses could fund and sustain themselves. A business spending three years on a research project, published and peer-reviewed, those are hard. And so her advice was to say, to learn how to do this. Now, it's clunky. It's painful. Sometimes you read these things, you're like, wow, my head hurts. That is the price of admission. That is the price to learn something that your competitors most likely will not spend the time, will not invest their time doing, but will give you some fundamentally wonderful insights into marketing that have already been validated. And what better place to go for, for advice or ideas than this type of channel? And so that's why I push and I continue to tell people, I say, look, it's hard. I empathize with you. You need to get through this process. But what better place to go for advice and new ideas than this team of brilliant academics that are out there in the world saying, this is what I learned that you can do next. That's amazing. That is some good advice I'm sure we marketeers can use and all the listeners can use. So with this, let's end the show because we have two amazing big takeaways at the end. We have a lot of insights and intellectual conversations which everybody can hook up through the conversation. But these two bombshells are great. One very simple, go beyond the first two pages of Google and one more complex, but in the end, more satisfying. So Neil, thank you so much for this great session that we had together. My pleasure. Thanks for I read me. your book with a lot of pleasure and I hope others will too. Thank you. Take care. And a big thank you, Neil, for joining us today and sharing your valuable insight theories and practical experience. Quite a few of you mentioned insights. I'm going to use myself and I hope, dear listeners, 
that you found these insights inspiring as well. And if so, please share our Branding Over Wine podcast with friends and colleagues. And when you have a moment, we'd love to get your reviews or ratings. Hope to have you all listening in on our next podcast. And thank you all for tuning in.